1 John 1, beginning in verse 5. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Previously, John has been addressing the issue of fellowship with God and fellowship with the church. And the issue of fellowship, as we considered, was centered on Christ. Believing in the biblical Christ and abiding by his teaching. And as we've already addressed, the churches John was writing to were being assaulted by the heretical teachings of Gnosticism. We looked at the particular divisions within Gnosticism. And one of those particular sects or divisions of Gnosticism were the Docetists or the Dualists. The Dualists saw our existence as twofold, if you remember, separating the physical from the spiritual. They taught that the physical or material part of our existence was evil. And the spirit or immaterial part of our existence was good. In their religious teachings, the dualists taught that the fleshly part of our existence was indeed evil. And that God was actually not interested in saving that part of our makeup or existence. They taught that God was only interested in the immaterial part of us. The spirit. So this teaching allowed for a very indulgent lifestyle. You could live however you wanted. You could live to feed the flesh. Since God is not interested in that part anyway, live it up. Since the body is evil anyway, live to please it. Because God will eventually deliver you from it. Now you can only imagine how appealing this was to a worldly bunch. You mean I can live however I want and still be presentable to God? Well, since I have a license to sin, I will sin the more. So this doctrine was infecting the churches there in Asia Minor as it was being presented as acceptable, sound Christian belief. Additionally, and even more damaging to Christian doctrine was the dualist's belief about the person of Christ. They taught that since the physical and material were evil, God in no way would have ever appeared in human flesh. For the dualists, the doctrine of the incarnation was unthinkable. Incarnation becoming flesh, becoming man. Therefore, the life and appearances of Christ, even post-resurrection, to the dualists were not physical appearances. Christ only appeared as physical flesh and blood. But in reality, he was a ghost-like spirit 
roaming around the world. Otherwise, if God appeared in Christ as a physical flesh and blood body, then God would have to be intrinsically evil. So their doctrine destroyed some, or tried to destroy some very essential doctrines of the Christian faith. The doctrine of the incarnation, and more particularly the doctrine of the atonement, and various other doctrines. Very fundamental to what Christians were to believe. Very fundamental to the gospel. So John writes these epistles to set the record straight. Just as he taught according to his gospel, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He writes that he, as well as other apostles, proclaimed not only that which they had heard from Christ and beheld with their own eyes, but also that which they had touched. Remember those first few verses we considered? That Jesus came not only as God in flesh, but also Orthodox doctrine teaches that while remaining 100% God while in the flesh, He was also 100% man, subject to the limitations of man. He was and is the God-man, even post-resurrection. The Gospels teach us that He appeared to witnesses, commanding them to place their hands on Him, feeling the scars from His crucifixion. He also ate with them, proving to them that He was a physical human body, though now glorified, still physical flesh and blood. This is essential to Christian doctrine. John not only sets the doctrinal record straight concerning the person of Christ, but he also goes on to emphasize that faith in Christ, unlike what the dualists are teaching you, should produce righteous behavior, holy conduct. When converted, the believer is immediately justified before God, having had the perfect righteousness of Christ imputed upon them. So believers are now looked upon by God as sinless because we're clothed in Christ, dressed in His righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. After conversion, there is to be an ongoing growth. That what began at conversion is to continue and grow. As Paul wrote, he who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it until the day of redemption. Call this sanctification. Progressive sanctification. The Christian condition does not give us a license to sin, to behave as we like. Some, I believe, misunderstood Luther when Luther said, Sin boldly, but believe more boldly in Christ. I don't think Luther at all meant that you can live however you want, but some in the Lutheran tradition would teach kind of an antinomianistic lifestyle where it means you can sin the more so that grace may abound. But that is consistent with the dualist doctrine. Live however you want. But more particularly, God is not after your flesh. He's not after the body, the material part of us. He's only after the spiritual part of it. And that part is evil. The spiritual part is good. But John sets the record straight doctrinally about the holistic approach to Christian belief and behavior. That when the Spirit of God is implanted within us at conversion, there is now testimony in our hearts to obey the Word of God, the commands of Christ. That when He implants the Spirit within us, He cultivates the desire of ongoing repentance, 
But of ongoing desire too, as we've read, walk in the light. It is not that we now walk in obedience to earn salvation or even to keep salvation, but we walk in the light to honor Christ, to grow in the knowledge of righteousness. John teaches that this bears testimony to our salvation and the power of God that now works in our lives. The Bible says that those who are in Christ Jesus are new creations. The old has passed away, the new has come. Paul would write in Romans, we're no longer to sin the more, thinking that grace may abound. For those who are in Christ Jesus will desire to mortify sin, that is to put it to death, and also to strive to walk in the light, to walk in obedience. This is the essence of what John is addressing in our current passage, verses 8 through 10. Orthodoxy, that is right doctrine, revealed through orthopraxy, right behavior, believing conduct, walking in the light. A pattern of life that is described as obedience to Christ. Behavior that is described as disciplined and righteous. John teaches that this bears evidence of being in fellowship with God and fellowship with His people. Now, without knowing the background of the doctrinal and practical confusion caused by the Gnostics in this context, we could be in danger of misinterpreting this text and misappropriating it. It is very important that we know some of the particular doctrinal struggles John was addressing, as well as reminding ourselves to whom John is writing. Who's he writing to? The church. Do not forget that. He is not writing to unbelievers who have never heard the gospel. He is writing to professing believers who have been dealing with Christian doctrine for some time. That is why you will read on in this epistle, seeing him call them affectionately, my little children. He's writing to the church. Believers. He endears them as converts to Christian, to Christianity. Believers in Christ who have perhaps come to faith under his particular ministry, but if not, definitely through the apostolic witness and instruction. So as we read in this epistle, he is confident of their faith, but he knows how vulnerable they are to heresy. Now, if a church under direct apostolic instruction and supervision could be vulnerable to heresy, then how much the more could we who, under, who are under the supervision and instruction of Joel? We're vulnerable. Don't ever think you've arrived and come to the point that you can't be seduced into believing something that is inconsistent or false with the teachings of Christ. So John here writes to help these believers persevere in sound Christian doctrine and faithful practice. Now we especially need to be reminded of these things when interpreting verse 9 in our passage. When I read that, many of you just looked up at me because you could quote it from memory. This verse has been famously used throughout more recent church history as an evangelistic text. But in context and in light of authorial intent, this verse was more was motivated and should be more appropriately used to address Christian sanctification, Christian growth. It was not necessarily given to bring the unbeliever to Christ, 
But it was given to persevere the struggling believer in the faith. You say, I have used that verse so many times in gospel presentation. And we're going to look at that verse. And I'm not saying that the things in that verse are part of the the gospel process or coming to faith. But if we go to context and all thorough intent, it wasn't used for that matter. We'll look at three things today. Number one. Verse 8 teaches us that we are not to be deceived through denial. What do I mean by that? Look at verse 8 again. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. Do not be deceived through denial. Remember, John is dealing with heretics who, who were claiming that before God, they had no sin. That is, they taught that the part that God wanted, their spirits, remained sinless. This is not true according to the gospel. It is not true even of true believers, Christians. Yes, in justification, that is at conversion, when the Spirit of God imputes the righteousness of Christ upon us, we are immediately justified, cleared before God of sin, positionally standing before God as if we are sinless because we're in Christ. This is the justification aspect of the gospel. However, the gospel does not mean that when we come to faith that we currently in this life have no sin. Nor in this life will we ever reach a level of maturity where we have arrived to be sinless, to have completely conquered sin. The truth is, you will remain tainted with sin until the day you die or the day Christ appears and glorifies you. At that point, you will be fitted with a new body that will be sinless, perfected, no longer tainted by sin or suffering from the effects of sin. Until that point, you are still in sin, sinful. The doctrine of total depravity remains a fact even after we are converted. Upon conversion, the war between the flesh and the spirit begins, the true war. In this war, there are times that we give ground to our sin, our fleshly passions. There are times in this war where we can be victorious and conquer the desire to sin. But all the while, the stain or the residue of the old self remains, still tainting every facet of our being. In this war, we grow as Christians. In this war, we become more and more, or should become more and more sensitive to this fallen aspect of our lives. We become more and more aware of how vulnerable we are to sin. Now, in this doctrine, you should note that we may not be as sinful as we could be, but sin, nevertheless, remains and lies dormant, ready to seize upon our every weakness. In God's wisdom, as we read in the Catechism, He has allowed this fallen aspect to remain in us for His divine purposes. One of those purposes is that we learn dependency upon Christ. Always. Always knowing that we are vulnerable in need of the grace of God to endure us. Paul wrote of this about himself. Did he not claim of himself that I am the chief of sinners? This is the Apostle Paul. We would perhaps think that if anyone had 
in this life figured out this sin stuff and how to conquer it, it would have been the Apostle Paul. However, the more he walked with Christ, the closer he got to Christ, the more aware he was of his wretched self. The more frustrated he became with it and the more disdain he developed towards it. This is why he said, the very things I ought to do, I do not. And the very things I ought not to do, I do. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? At no point in this life will you completely conquer sin. This will not be till the Lord comes. And it is not you conquering, it is the Lord who has conquered it. And fulfills that conquering when He comes to glorify you and to completely deliver you from your sinful and fallen condition. But the truth remains in this life for us all. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is true even after conversion. It is true. It is an inescapable fact. The only person who lived his life without sin was the Lord Jesus Christ. Any doctrine or teacher that proclaims that sinless perfection is achievable in this life is teaching error. That's why John writes, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. The Gnostic dualists were teaching these churches that you were sinless in this life, in your spirit, while at the same time you could live sinfully in your flesh. To them, every facet was not tainted with sin. Your spirit is no longer affected when you become part of the club of the dualists. That part of you has indeed arrived. Your flesh, on the other hand, remains worthless. You can do whatever you want to in it, to it. It can sin. And while you feed it and sin in the flesh, it cannot affect or infect your spirit. Now, I do not think any person in this sanctuary today would claim sinlessness as the Gnostics. So you may be asking, how does this text particularly apply to me? What truth could I gain from this text to help me understand about myself? I'm not a Gnostic. I don't claim that. So I don't want to leave you without a practical lesson from this text. We are not necessarily struggling because we have embraced the Gnostic dualist heresy. But we do, if you're like me, have a tendency at times to puff ourselves up and deny our sinful contributions in various situations. My tendency so often is to allow my pride to get in the way. We always need to be aware of our sin in conflict. We have a tendency to excuse ourselves and rush to condemn others. They are at fault. Or they are more at fault than I am. If we are ever to experience healing in our relationships and situations, we need to be focused on our sinful contributions to our broken and struggling relationships. Pastor, I'm not without sin, but I have not sinned as much or I have not done this or that to the degree that they have achieved or reached. Church, beware of sinful pride that keeps you from being humble and working toward reconciliation with your neighbor, your Christian brother or sister, your spouse, or whomever. If we rewind all the way back to verse 5, walking in the light demands humble 
confession and honesty. This requires taking inventory of our hearts and taking ownership of our sin. Confessing it before offended parties. Letting them know that regardless of who is more at fault, acknowledging you are at fault to some degree and at taking responsibility for that. You want others to know that you have sinned and that you have failed them. And more importantly, you have failed Christ. You want healing in your marriages, in your families, in the workplace, in the church, or with your neighbor. So practice humble confession as you take ownership for your contributing sin. It is hard to believe we are ever without sin in particular conflicts. When we come to grips with this, you will find a life filled more with harmony, peace, and so much less heartache. Also, nothing proclaims and evidences the gospel to a lost world more than when Christians humble themselves and take ownership for their sin. Do not be deceived through denial. Do not deny your sinful contributions. Do not deceive yourself into thinking that you're squeaky clean. And the more disciplined you are in the faith and the more faithful you walk with Christ and stay in the Word, I'm going to tell you, the more God will draw you into His holiness and you will see through His light how much of a wretch you remain to be. You remember singing in that hymn today, For such a worm as I. So many people are stripping that kind of language out of hymns today because we've got to be positive. Well, the gospel is positive, but not... When it shines the light of God's holiness upon our condition, man, it, it, it really diagnoses the putrid, foul things that are in our heart and that remain to be in our heart. And that's a gracious work of God in our sanctification. And when you see that about yourselves, oh, it will aid you, particularly in conflict and how you deal with other people who are struggling with sin, that you see them in light of yourselves. But for the grace of God, I would be right there in that cesspool. I've been in cesspools in my life. Perhaps I'm currently wading through one. I want to warn you, the closer you get to the Lord Jesus and the more faithful you are in reading His Word, you're going to find that you're not only knee-deep, you're perhaps neck-deep in it. But Jesus is there. The Father is there through His Spirit to draw us out, to clean us up. But this takes His holy surgery upon our hearts and that continual diagnosis, that continual revelation into our lives and our hearts. And when we see it, rather than run from it, run running from it and hiding and living in secrecy. We're honest with ourselves and who we are. And repent, mortify, put it off, war against it. So do not be deceived through denial. We may not be confessing sinlessness. Oh, pastor, I'm not sinless. But how so often... We want to cast blame and not look at ourselves in such, to such a degree as we would look at other sinners. We are a wretched lot. We are worms. And may it keep us on our knees, continue looking to Christ, knowing that the righteousness given us we have not achieved. We have not even come close. Even that which we attempt to do that is good, it is like filthy rags before God. That the goodness that God accepts before Him is the righteousness 
that He achieved through Christ and has placed upon us. That keeps us humble before God and before one another. Secondly, the text teaches us that we need to continually give evidence of our cleansing. Give evidence of your cleansing from sin. Look at verse 9. And you can quote this from memory. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How many times have you heard this verse used in an evangelistic context or presentation? Now, it is true that when we come to Christ, we confess. Confession is part of repentance. That we agree that we are sinners. It is true that when we come to Christ, we are forgiven of our sins. And we are cleansed from all unrighteousness. Those things are true evangelistically. Everything about this verse is true upon conversion. However, is the apostle using this text in an evangelistic context? Again, who is he writing to the church? He is not writing to a group of people who have never heard the gospel. He is writing to people who have professed Christ and given ample evidence of conversion. This is why he addressed them very affectionately, my little children. So, I am perhaps asking you this morning to look at this text a little differently than perhaps you have have looked at it in the past. And you may still disagree with me and go on using it evangelistically, but at least for the time being, hear me out. What we should gather from context is that while confession of sin is absolutely crucial to entering the light, that is, being justified, being converted... John means to teach us here that confession of sin is absolutely critical to walking in the light. Confession of sin is critical to Christian growth, sanctification. It is not just a one-time thing to enter the kingdom, but it serves as evidence of you belonging to the kingdom and you're growing. So I want to warn you that to use this text evangelistically can at times cultivate doctrinal error. What doctrinal error is that? Well, the doctrine of salvation by grace alone. That is not an erroneous doctrine, but if we use this text evangelistically, it can undermine that doctrine. To interpret this verse appropriately, we've got to do two things. First, verse 9 must be interpreted in light of other scripture. The context of the whole Bible as well as the immediate context. He's writing to the church. That's the immediate context. Well, that pumps the brakes a bit on using it evangelistically. But also to interpret it in light of the entirety of Scripture. We notice that in the text, and it's translated appropriately here from the Greek, that this is an if-then statement. Meaning it is a conditional statement. Conditional clause. If I do A then B and C occur. If I confess, then God forgives and cleanses. If confession is made, forgiveness and cleansing result, this leads us to believe, then, therefore, my salvation must be conditional, based on something I must do, which is, in essence, or by definition, a salvation by works. This interpretation would absolutely shred texts like Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So the holistic teaching from Scripture is that salvation is not conditional. Salvation is unconditional. It is by grace and grace alone. The realization and willingness to confess and agree with God of my condition is, first of all, not something of my own doing. 
It is not something that he and I jointly achieve. That's what we mean by synergistic salvation. God's work plus my effort equals salvation. That's what we mean by synergistic salvation. We preach monergistic salvation. That God alone does all the work. We are the recipients. So the gospel work, if we were to look at this evangelistically, in that confessing, confessing sin so that we would be cleansed and receive righteousness, that confession, therefore, must be a desire and ability, first of all, granted to me by God. It is by grace. It is achieved 100% by God within me. My response is simply a result of His sovereign internal work. So, to use this text evangelistically has the danger of cultivating a gospel of works. It would not be doctrinally consistent with the rest of Scripture. So we've got a doctrinal problem if we use it evangelistically. That I've got to do this in order to get this. That's a conditional salvation. Attacking monergistic Salvation by grace alone. Secondly, to use this text evangelistically is, as I said in the immediate context, a misappropriation of the text anyway. This is not John's purpose. He did not have an evangelistic motive here. Context shows us that this is written by John, purpose to persevere the church in sound gospel doctrine. He is confronting doctrinal error particularly the Gnostic dualist heresy that is teaching weird and wild doctrines, particularly sinlessness in this life. So the Gnostics taught that to be a part of their Christian cult, you were to be in the know, part of the team. You must possess their secret knowledge. That's what gnosis means. Knowledge, hence Gnostic. Secret knowledge. You must be a part of this secret knowledge in order to be part of the team. And once you possess this secret knowledge, you then belong to the club of the spiritually elite. You then possessed a spirit that was sinless. So you were, according to the Gnostics, in essence, without sin. To keep these churches from being duped by these heretical dualists, John teaches not only that you remain a sinner upon conversion, but there needs to be ongoing confession of sin for Christian growth. Believers have been given for past sins, forgiven for current sins, and will be forgiven for future sins. So that you will grow in this forgiven state, you need to be ever aware of your sinful condition. As he will teach in chapter 2, the believer will continue to sin. It is not that you retreat spiritually and accept sinning in response to that. Oh, I'm going to sin. so It's inevitable. I'm just going to enjoy it while I can because it's inevitable. That's not the way we respond to that. We're never to throw in the towel. We must war against sin's continual draw. And we do so partly by confessing it. And this is the, this is the, the, the theme of John here. Confession, 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 agreement, acknowledging it. Confess in this text comes from the Greek word homologeo, which means to say the same thing. The tense of the verb here conveys that this is not a one-time thing, but continual. It is ongoing. This is something that confirms, according to John, and evidences our faith. That we are in fellowship with God and in good standing with the church. So to misinterpret and to misappropriate this text would be to say that our salvation, and even keeping our salvation, is contingent upon confession. If I confess my sins, then God will forgive me. That's the way it's used. That's the way it's often interpreted. But that's a misappropriation of the text. It's a misinterpretation of the text. 
Because our salvation, our forgiveness is not contingent upon confession. That we're forgiven by the grace of God even before the foundation of the world. But there is that point where He enlightens us, He illumines us, He converts us, He changes us. But then our souls come into agreement and alignment with the grace of God, with what He has set us apart to do. Some use this text to teach that it is possible to lose salvation. Some say it is possible to be a Christian as you have confessed your sins and you're forgiven because you've confessed those sins. But what if you were to breathe your last before you were able to confess to God that last sin? sin. Some will teach that, well, you enter into eternity with unconfessed sin. Therefore, you're not forgiven for that sin and you remain unrighteous before God. And so people teach this ridiculous notion of making sure every day you're confessing, confessing and make sure that your salvation not only occurs upon your confession that is necessitated by human work, but also your keeping of salvation is dependent upon ongoing confession. The Catholics have this ridiculous teaching of absolution. That the priest has the power to absolve sin and forgive so long as you go and confess. That's why they're lining up at the booth to go in. They live like hell, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, on Monday morning. Run to the booth! So I can get cleansed and absolved. I think Wednesday night we learn who has the power and authority to forgive sin, and it's certainly not a pastor or a priest. It's Christ and Christ alone. But it comes from this misappropriation of the text. We've got to make sure we've got to get to the booth to confess so that I can get absolved and forgiven for that sin. So that I will not breathe my last. And when I breathe my last, there remains some sort of unconfessed. Boy, to live like that, if you take it seriously, you'd be miserable and living in a terrified situation and discomfort regularly. But to teach that it's possible to to be a Christian because of your confession and then breathe your last before you were able to confess that last sin and then split hell wide open because you lost it because you did not confess that last sin. There's so much scripture against this, I don't even know where to begin to start. Here's the, quickly, let me say this. No believer will ever enter heaven with a list of unconfessed sins still hanging over their heads. Why? Because of the finished work of Christ. Past, present, and future. Christ completely covers all of the sins of those who believe, including those that remain unconfessed. This text was not intended to be used evangelistically or used to teach a doctrine of conditional salvation or conditional persevering salvation. It is addressing sanctification and persevering faith, growth in faith. John MacArthur writes this, he could say it better than I can, quote, What John is actually saying here about confession is that since believers are forgiven, they will regularly confess their sins. Stated another way, their forgiveness is not because of their ongoing confession, but their ongoing pattern of penitence and confession is because of their forgiveness and transformation. As the Holy Spirit sanctifies believers, He continually produces within them a hatred for sin which results in penitent hearts and a sincere acknowledgement of their sins. The more believers grow in Christ, the greater their hatred of sin becomes and the deeper is their penitence. If we confess our sins, He, God, is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from unrighteousness. According to context, this means that ongoing confession and hatred for sin gives evidence of God's cleansing for sin and ongoing cleansing in the believer's life. 
ignoring sin and continued indulgence and growth in sin gives evidence of the opposite. So the charge here is that we need to give evidence of our cleansing. Our cleansing is not conditional based on what we do. Our cleansing is based on God's grace, that we are forgiven. And to show and confirm and affirm that God has forgiven us, we practice regularly humble confession before Him. That gives evidence that He has cleansed, is cleansing, and will cleanse. What does this look like in our lives? Husbands, as we confess our sins to God, if we offend our wives, we confess our sin to our wives. Wives, we confess to our husbands. Brothers and sisters in the church, confess to one another. Confess your sin to one another. Not to receive forgiveness. It is because you have been forgiven. And you walk humbly before one another. You confess. It's part of a repentant lifestyle. A sanctified life. Confess your sin to the one you have wronged. But ultimately confess your sins to God. Plead for grace to overcome and mortify the besetting sins in your life. What is a besetting sin? It is that sin that continually trips you up and gnaws at you that you just, just cannot seem to conquer. We all have them. Confession of sin does not save you or keep you saved. You do this because you have been saved. You reveal that God has cleansed and is cleansing you. So verse 9, what I submit to you, must be interpreted and applied in light of context. And the holistic interpretation of Scripture. Scripture must be interpreted based on other Scripture. If this text is used evangelistically, setting up a conditional salvation, and we've got a host of Scriptures we will have a problem with. And then we're tearing it out of context and using it in a way that John did not. My little children, this needs to be a pattern in your life. Not for salvation. It's a pattern in your life to reveal that you have been saved. Confess your sin. Going to the Greek, the tense, ongoing. As you regularly confess your sins, God is regularly faithful to forgive your sins and cleanse you of your unrighteousness. Now, I understand that when we read that in an English sense, we grasp from it a conditional clause. But to help us interpret it accurately and to be consistent with biblical theology, it's got to be kept within context. And don't allow your English to do a disservice to the meaning of the text. As we apply it in our lives, does your life, does your walk consistently practice humble confession, agreement, acknowledgement of sin? You'll never war against it if you don't come to the point of agreeing that, God, I'm a sinner. This is... Got to mortify this sin. And we've talked about how God sees sin in previous sermons here in John. And this is crescendoing to the end to help us wage war against the sin in our lives, in our hearts. Third and finally, we need to be aware of what we communicate through no confession. Be aware of what you communicate through no confession. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar and His word is not in us. As John confronts the heresy of his day, he declares that if one claims that he or she has not sinned, they are not only lying, but they're committing the ultimate blasphemy. They are making God to be a liar. We can look at Scripture and see that they make God a liar in two ways. Number one, they explicitly deny the Word's diagnosis of the human condition. 
Bible's clear. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Read Romans 3, beginning in verse 10. As Paul describes man's desperate condition before God. There's no one who does good. There's no one who seeks. Talks about how our speech, our lips, are open graves. The venom of serpents is on our lips. I mean, it's just a, just a constant bombardment of the sinful description of man. And Paul, as well as the rest of Scripture, means to tell us that no one is exempt. All are condemned before God. All may not sin to the same degree and frequency, but all are sinners. Paul makes it clear in Romans that we are not sinners because we sin, but that we sin because we're sinners. He teaches that we're born in enmity with God. Being a sinner is an inescapable condition. It is unavoidable. That at conception, as the psalmist wrote in Psalm 51 verse 5, In my mother's womb I was conceived in sin. And even as I exit the womb, Psalm 58 verse 3, The wicked go astray from birth. I am doomed to sin because I am conceived in sin. Romans 5.12, Paul teaches that because one man died, one man sinned, death came to all. The condition spread to all. This is what we mean by original sin. No one can escape it. The only one who did, Christ, via virgin birth. But we are Adam and Eve's posterity. Because of our original patriarch, we inherit it. We're condemned. We're doomed. It's inescapable. We will sin. So, John says here, to deny sin is to deny our condition. And to deny it, we blaspheme God. We make Him a liar. He says His Word is not in us. This is what the Word teaches. You want to go around teaching a sinless condition, you make God to be a liar. This is blasphemy. Secondly, when we say we have not sinned, we deny the need for a Savior. Why would we need a righteous substitute to be in our place if we are sinless? So he addresses the Gnostic heresy because it's infecting those churches. And he senses the church's vulnerability. So John intervenes. First, second, third John to these churches. Again, you may say, well... I'm not struggling with Gnosticism, denying that I am a sinner, so what practical lesson could I learn from this? Perhaps you remember the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18. These Jewish men went to the temple to worship. The Pharisee entered, expressing himself in a self-righteous manner, saying, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, the unjust, adulterers, all those adulterers. Not like them. Or even like this tax collector. Tax collectors were the lowest of the low in the Jewish mind. Tax collectors were Jewish men who worked for the Romans collecting taxes from their Jewish kinsmen. The Romans gave these Jewish hirelings liberty to charge as much as they wanted because what extra money they could collect from their Jewish kinsmen, they were allowed to pocket it. If you don't like the IRS, you'd have a hard time with the tax collectors in Israel. Nevertheless, the Pharisees' worship exalted himself, his self-righteousness. I've not betrayed my kinsmen. I'm not like that tax collector. I'm not like the adulterers, the unjust, the swindlers. He saw himself perhaps not. Pharisees didn't see themselves as completely sinless. But they did in fact see themselves Better than most, certainly better than the worst of society. 
And here he struts into the temple thanking God that he had not fallen into such lows and become such a person. But then came the tax collector, perhaps dealing with the shame, internal shame, how he felt of betraying his kinsmen for the pagan Romans. He turned his back upon his people, upon his faith, so he enters the temple. The text says he could not even look up. He began to beat upon his breast saying, God, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. The emphasis there in the original that he saw himself as the worst. Jesus' response to his audience would have been shocking because the people in his day thought that no one was as righteous as a Pharisee. Look at what those guys do. They, they tithe mint, dill, and cumin. <laughs> they sip their tea through their teeth so they will not ingest an insect becoming ceremonially de- defiled. They, they follow the minutia of the law. All the rabbis and what they have written, piles upon piles of extra laws, they follow them. If anybody's going to make it to heaven through, through righteousness, it's got to be those guys. Look at how conscientious they are about these, these burdens of the law. Jesus shocks his audience and looks at them and says, I tell you, that day the tax collector went down justified before God. Why? Because the tax collector saw himself as God saw him. A sinner. He agreed, confessed, and felt miserable. He confessed before God who he truly was. The Pharisee only saw himself as good. Again, God's word says there's no one good. He did not acknowledge he was a sinner before God. That is the Pharisee. He could not see himself as God saw him. Therefore, he stood continually condemned as one who was responsible to live according to God's law, teaching and presenting truth. This man portrayed the opposite. He denied his sinfulness, making God a liar. And he was to be a religious authority. Instead of teaching truthfulness about God, he taught the opposite through the hardness of his heart, the pompous and prideful confession of his own heart that he remained good, sinless, or not as sinful as others. We too can be pharisaical in our lives. We may not confess or profess sinlessness, but we do not want to see ourselves as all that bad. Oh, we can pick out people in the world today that are far worse sinners than we are. Or as I said earlier, in our conflicts, how we're prone to give greater blame to others. Because we're so full of pride. We accept that we're all sinners, but we find comfort in pointing to others who have been far worse than we have been. Also, we like to cover up our sins. We're prone to want to present ourselves in the best possible light to our Christian brothers and sisters. And we're not honest with ourselves to others and certainly not before God. We are guilty or in danger of committing the same blasphemy that the Pharisee and others did. We make God a liar when we live in secrecy and hide our sin and not confess it. We need to cultivate the same humility as the tax collector. And we cultivate this kind of humility and agreement. This will save us from blaming and condemning others. This will save us from living in hypocritical secrecy, darkness, and deception. We need to come to the light. Coming to the light is part of walking in the light. And I've got to warn you, you know this, exposing light can be painful, shameful. 
but it is purifying and redemptive. Beware of what you communicate of God through neglecting and avoiding confession, hiding your sin. We may not be confessing sinlessness. I don't think any of us would confess that. But at times we can be prone because of embarrassment and shame of hiding our sin, not squaring up before God, taking inventory of our own hearts. What helps is we walk closer and closer to the Lord Jesus. I want to tell you, the more you drift from the church and you drift from the disciplines of the faith, you drift from those who love you, the more you're going to wander into the darkness. The more your heart is going to become calcified. You start to look like anything but a Christian. You start looking, well, I'm not so bad. Look at these others. You start finding comfort in condemning others. And here John He's writing to a church that's being duped or possibly or vulnerable to Gnostic heretics. But we're all vulnerable to sin and thinking this way. And here this epistle comes to us, shining light into our hearts, exposing us for who we are. And we need to respond humbly and appropriately, agreeing, confessing, to beware that we make God out to be a liar when we live in such a way. So the pattern of one being in fellowship with God and His people is confession. Humble confession. It gives evidence of being cleansed. There may be a therapeutic nature to confession, but John is not teaching here that if you confess, then you obligate God to save you. You're saved by grace. That confession is a pattern, and it becomes a natural pattern to those who have been converted, to those who have come to Christ. And it needs to be a regular occurrence for Christian growth and perseverance. So we walk in the light as He is in the light. His light shines upon us and exposes us for who we are. If we say we have no sin, we make God out to be a liar. The truth is not in us. But this ongoing confession reveals of His ongoing cleansing and forgiveness. This is the light. This is where I want to walk. I want to walk in this light. And love me enough when I start to stray into the darkness. Come after me and plead with me to get back into the light. Knowing that I am just as much a sinner as you are. I may not have stepped to such lows or such degrees as the world has. And such diabolical sin before God. But I know that before God we are all condemned already. We're standing before God as sinners. And we deserve the fury of His fire. We deserve hell. All of us do. Just by the very fact that He has not plunged us into hell right now is a testimony to His loving grace. But that He's gone beyond that and He spared us. And He shined the light of His truth into our hearts. Showed us, been gracious and merciful enough to show us who we are in light of Himself. And put upon us the righteousness of Christ. And now we ought to be the most humble people on the planet. Coming before Him regularly. God, I... I have failed you. I have this besetting sin that that puts the gospel in a bad light. That teaches an inconsistent, hypocritical message about Christianity. Oh, God, help me to walk in the light and to put away this sin. But for the grace of God, we would all be in the same cesspool as everyone else. We're no better than anyone else. We're sinners saved by grace. May we continually humbly acknowledge that and cultivate that. 
continually confessing our sin and walking closer and closer to Christ. May God add blessing to the reading, hearing, and proclamation of His Word.